Now we're good to go. Good morning. It's good to be with you, church. If we have not met, my name is Brett. I, as well, am one of the pastors here at Veritas Church. Good to be with you as we gather this morning to be refreshed in the good news of the gospel. One other final reminder um, in the ministry announcements for our members. Don't forget this evening at 5.30, we will be meeting again here for our final members meeting of this calendar year. And so that um, information should be there in your bulletin. Um, Also um, joining with us will be the 19 new members that we've just uh, received into membership as well. So 5.30 this evening. Would you take your copy of God's Word? Along with me, we will return this morning to the book of 1 John as we're taking the the weeks here in the month of December to consider this one question, why has Christ come? And this morning we continue to ask and answer that question as we consider God's word. We're going to be focusing in on 1 John 3, verse 8. But for the sake of context, let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 3. See what love, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Would you join with me in praying, asking for the Lord's aid as we consider his his word this morning? God and Father, we look to you this morning. We come to you on the basis of your own promise. We come to you on the basis of faith and our great mediator, your Son, Jesus Christ the righteous. And we come and we ask that you would be faithful to fulfill the very promise that you've made to us. That in looking to your Son and looking to your own word, that we would know your heart, that we would know and see the Father. And in seeing the Father, we ask that we would know so much more of your heart for us, that we would know something more of the great mystery of the gospel, that we would know something more of the grand scope and plan of of our redemption, the hope that is set before us. Lord, we ask and we pray that you would help us as we consider even just a brief portion of your word, knowing that it is your word, living and active. And so we pray and we ask that you would help us by the very ministry of your own spirit, that we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, that we would have the hearts of meekness that are ready to receive the implanted word that's able to save our souls. And Lord, in hearing and receiving, we ask also 
that by the same work of the same Spirit, you would cause this Word to bear much fruit, that you would cause us to have great confidence in your Son, that you would cause us to be overflowing with fullness of joy, being mindful of the fellowship that we share in the Son. We ask that you would accomplish this this morning, that Christ may be magnified here in our midst, we pray. Amen. Well, if your home is like ours, you've probably already begun receiving a few Christmas cards in the mail. And as you've begun to open them up and perhaps display them or put them somewhere in your house, there's probably a a few familiar, even repetitive phrases that have marked out some of those cards that are within our homes. Those phrases that we come to expect this time of year, the picture of those that we know and love, and then underneath perhaps peace on earth, phrase goodwill to men, something along the lines of a light has shone forth, a light in the darkness, the hope of salvation, all the phrases that we've come to know and love that encapture so much of what this season is and our hope in Christ. While all of that is true, there is another phrase. There is another image that really does make up much of the emphasis of this Christmas story, but it doesn't get a lot of promotion on these Christmas cards or even some of the Christmas hymns that we sing and the melodies that we put to these truths. That theme that is often neglected is that of destruction. I don't know the last time I received a Christmas card that had anything to do with destruction. But if we are true to our scripture and if we consider much of what scripture teaches, this theme of destruction, ironically, is very much a part of the hope and the joy that we express in Christ. It may not be popular, but it is very foundational. It is very central to understanding why we would say good news, why we would say we have hope, why we would say, even as John has written, a fullness of joy. Why? Because what we are celebrating is not just sentimentalism. What we are celebrating is not just a fable. It's not a mere ideology or theory. Christianity is, at its core, a declaration. It's a declaration of victory. Specifically, Christ's victory over evil, over Satan, over sin, and death itself. And therefore, if that's true, if it is a real victory, then that means there must also be a real destruction of anything that would rise up, usurp, and oppose all of that goodness, truth, and beauty. So, as we consider the various reasons why Christ has come in this month of December, we must include within that discussion what John says here, the reason, John 3, 8, that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And if we want to know more of this fullness of joy and the fellowship with God that John is writing about there in chapter 1, then we need to also gather this theme up in our hands and consider it and say, why has Christ appeared? And we raise our hands and say, well, in part, to destroy the works of the devil. So that's my aim this morning to simply consider this truth, to meditate upon it. And let's do so by just asking two questions. What are the works of the devil? So that we're clear on that. And then how specifically has Christ come to destroy them? What are the works of the devil? And as I ask that question, you may already have a number of 
responses in your mind, especially as you read your Bible and find that Satan is described in a number of different ways. Perhaps you think of his title as being the one who is the accuser. In Revelation chapter 12, Satan is the one who accuses the brethren night and day before God, meaning that he's constantly working to bring accusations against God's people, that he is the accuser and that he's constantly seeking to drag God's people down into shame and to despair. We also know that he's described as the destroyer. He is Apollyon. He is the one who ravages the earth with pestilence, with suffering, with death. But we also keep in mind that he's described as a liar. He's a deceiver. Christ himself calls him the father of lies. Because he's been lying since the very beginning. And when he speaks, he speaks with a forked tongue, calling good evil and evil good. And so as we read our scriptures we could deduce that Satan works along three lines, physically, intellectually, and spiritually, seeking to be the accuser, the destroyer, the liar. What I mean by that is that physically, he most certainly inflicts disease and seeks to destroy those who bear the image of God. He is actively working to bring that about. But intellectually, he is also working as he seeks to seduce and to to deceive people into believing error. And spiritually, we know that he blinds the minds of unbelievers lest they see and believe the gospel, the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is all very much the work of the devil. But John, here in this context, has something more specific in mind. Here in 1 John 3, our attention is drawn to this reality that the works of the devil are sins. Now, we must allow the immediate context of these verses to to direct our thoughts and to guide our steps. And so it's, it's helpful, I think, at this point to work outward in a series of concentric circles to lay hold of the emphasis that John has in mind. And the closest concentric circle is the sentence before in verse 8a and the sentence after in verse 9. What does John mean when he speaks of the works of the devil being sins? Look back at your Bible, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then the verse we're considering, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. First, what John says is that the devil sins and those who sin are in alignment with him. Then he said Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil. And then he says no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, meaning that is ongoing, unrepentant sin. When people commit sin, what John is saying, in part, is that it is a work of the devil. Because the primary energy and focus of Satan's activity is to tempt, to deceive, and to provoke people to sin. And so when they sin, his work is accomplished. So, what John is getting at is that the Son of God came to destroy not just the guilt of sin, 
that we considered last week, but actual sinning. The very mechanism that entices, promotes, justifies, encourages sinning. Christ has come to destroy. But we can press this further. Consider how that John says sin is lawless rebellion. Let's take another concentric circle and widen out here in the text to try and again define what are the works of the devil by with asking with a more precise question, okay, what is sin? We'll look back at verse 4 as we widen out a bit more. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. If you are here last week, this should sound familiar. We kept this in mind as well as we're trying to remember what has come Christ, what has He come to save us from? Sin. Sin is lawlessness. What John is getting at here is that lawlessness is essentially living as though your own ideas or your own desires are superior to God's. Lawlessness says God may demand it, but I don't want it. Lawlessness says God may promise it, but I don't need it. Lawlessness replaces God's law with my own contrary ideas, and I then, as a result, I become a law unto myself. Lawlessness is this rebellion against the right of God to make laws that govern His creation. And this lawlessness essentially then is a pushback against the will of God. And this is sin. And so this really gets at the very root of the real problem with the world that you and I live in. We are sinners. And by our very nature and by our very choice, we suppress the truth of God's law. And secondly, we say... We have an adversary, Satan himself, who's made it his aim to lead this insurrection against men by enticing men and women everywhere to throw off the rule of God and to put on self-rule. Both of these things must be held together. We are sinners by nature and choice, and we have an adversary, his name is Satan, and he works night and day to entice sinners to continue to throw off the rule of God and say lawlessness is freedom. Lawlessness is good. This is very important. You may have a very robust and clear in your mind doctrine of sin. And this is good because the Bible gives us a very clear and very robust doctrine of sin. But friends, we must remember the scriptures also give to us a doctrine of our adversary. And sometimes we forget, while we love our Bibles and love to hold in the sense of, I understand the gospel when I understand sin, but if we don't also hold alongside that, this reality of Satan who works lawlessness, who promotes sin, if we leave that out of the equation, then friend, you actually have a worse view of humanity than God does. If the doctrine of sin, if sin is the only reason why we sin, our nature, we have a much lower and a much worse opinion of humanity than God himself does. 
Because while we affirm depravity and we affirm that we are sinners by nature and choice, the scriptures also say working in harmony with that depravity is one who seeks to overthrow God's rule by promoting lawlessness. He is, in a sense, fanning the flames. He is, in a sense, adding fuel to the fire. And both of these things are clear in our scriptures. Think back just upon your own week. How much strife, anger, jealousy, fear, pride, lust was your attempt to exalt your own desires and to throw aside God's good rule. Go back and, if you could, review tape. What would you see? You would see that act of temptation. You would see that decision and that sin itself. But what led up to that? At some point along the line, there was this attempt and this decision to say, I'm going to exalt my own law above the law of God. All of the fracture, all of the pain in our various relationships, that is the result of lawlessness. All of the discontentment with chores and schoolwork and jobs is the result of lawlessness. And within all of this, we have an enemy who just, as we said, seeks to pour gasoline on our disordered loves, enticing us to go on Sinning. And John is quick to note that the devil has been doing this since the beginning of creation. Because is not the ultimate act of rebellion to just put a question out there and say, did God really say? As he did in the garden. Is that not the ultimate act of rebellion? To seek to erode the good authority of God? to begin to question the purposes of God for his creation. Charles Spurgeon said, the work of sin is the work of the devil because it is such a work as he delights in. He has led the human race to become accomplices in his treason against the majesty of heaven, allies in his rebellion against the sovereignty of God most high. The works of the devil make up a black picture. It is a thick darkness over all the land, even a darkness that might be felt. What he's getting at is the very thing that Scripture teaches here in 1 John 5. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Or Ephesians 2. Paul's word to the church at Ephesus, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Do you hear that? Both realities are there. Our depravity and the devil. So then, stepping back, can you see then what the Son of God has come to destroy? The works of the devil are sin and lawlessness. And lawlessness is our close-fisted rebellion against the right of God to rule over us. And so the working of Satan then is to tempt, to deceive, and to persuade you and I that this good authority of God 
is bad, and instead to become our own authority. And so this means that Satan is actively working to plant, to promote, to cultivate the sort of pride within a heart that would exalt us to come to that place and say, yeah, that's absolutely true. This is lawlessness. And Christ has come to put an end to this rebellion, to crush the one who entices us to sin and works to destroy every reflection of the image of God. And so a major part of the celebration of Advent and meditating upon the coming of Christ is the celebration that Christ has come to obliterate the work of our enemy. And as we consider the teaching of Scripture, we're doing two things, especially in this season. We are, one, looking back to the first coming and rejoicing that this Son of God has appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And at the same time, we're looking ahead at the second coming in which the kingdom will come in all of its fullness and all of its full expression, and that this enemy will be forever crushed and the kingdom of righteousness will reign eternally. Second question, how does Christ actually destroy these works? That's great that that's what he's come to do, and I understand that the works of the devil are sin, and sin is lawlessness, and it is this inciting rebellion against the king. How does the Son of God, how does Christ actually destroy? Well, the Bible is very clear that through the death of Christ, through the resurrection of Christ, that Jesus displays his victory over the oppression of Satan and all of his minions. Yes, it is the end of our sin, and wrapped up with that is the destruction of Satan. Colossians 2, verse 13, Paul pulls these two truths together when he says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Both realities are affirmed again. Canceling the record of our debts by nailing them to the cross and in doing so, putting to open shame the rulers and principalities as he triumphed over them. But John has something more in mind here. While that is true, he's zeroing in even a little tighter on what he is getting at. And our clue is that he refers to Jesus as who? The Son of God. John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, could have put any title here. And yet, as he writes this truth, as the Spirit of God gives us apostolic doctrine, the very thing that has come from the Father, by the Spirit, to us. John writes, it is the Son of God that has come to destroy the works of the devil. This may be a term you're familiar with. Hopefully so, because it is at the heart of the gospel promise. Luke chapter 1, a portion of scripture we're probably familiar with reading this time of year. Verse 35, the angel 
answered her, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. But did you know that Jesus is not the only one referred to as the Son of God in Scripture? In fact, chronologically, in the storyline of Scripture, Jesus is not the first Son of God as the plan of salvation unfolds and is given to us. We get a little bit of clue when we continue reading in Luke's Gospel and we come to the genealogy portion. Luke begins to trace back the genealogy of Christ, and when he comes to verse 38, it says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. He directly connects Adam and his genealogy to God. Adam is called the son of God. Now, have you ever considered why? Why is Adam referred to as God's son? Friends, if we grasp this, if we lay hold of this truth, what the scriptures proclaim, the story of creation, of fall, redemption, and restoration, seeing Christ as the Son of God, it will become all the more wonderful to us. Consider what we are told concerning creation. From the outset of the biblical narrative within creation, we are told of a situation in which God rules over his people, he's in fellowship with them, in the place that he's prepared for them. That's essentially just the summary of the first portion of Genesis. Or as Graham Goldsworthy puts it, God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. That's the picture that we have. And as you pay attention, you find that it, that reality is the very desire of God that shapes our understanding of the rest of the arc of Scripture. God's people, in God's place, under God's authority. Behold, the dwelling place of God shall be with man. That is the, the, the end of the story that is really the, the circling back to the very beginning. That's what we're told in creation. This is God's design, to dwell with his people in the place that he has prepared for them. And consider then what we're told concerning Adam, who is placed in the middle of this place. The pinnacle of creation is man. While all of creation is astounding and God calls all of creation good, men and women are unique in that they are created in the image of God to reflect God. And make no mistake, these terms image and likeness, they are terms of sonship. We do this quite often, don't we? When we see the son or a daughter or somebody maybe that we grew up with or even some of those Christmas cards you get now. You see their children and you say, wow, he looks just like his dad. Look at that nose. And we begin to see the image of the son reflected in the father. To say that man was created in the image of God, Adam specifically has this idea of sonship wrapped around him. And within this title of sonship, Adam is given authority by God to tend and to keep the garden that he's placed in. He's to exercise dominion by God's design. But as we keep reading in this creation account, what do we find? Adam, the son of God, failed. He failed his God-given responsibility. Instead of tending and keeping 
and cultivating and defending. He allowed the serpent to invade, to tempt, to deceive, and therefore plunge all of creation under a curse. But consider what we are told as well concerning the promise. Not just what we know of creation, not just what we know of Adam, but there is a promise that is there as well. Because even after Adam falls, he fails to exercise his God-given role, God never plans to consign humanity to the scrap heap, and it says the end. Because there is much more. The promise is given, it is made as God tells the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And what God promises there in this very moment is a remedy for the serpent's usurping of the rule of God and the marring of humanity's relationship. What God promises is that he'll send another son. He will send another son from the seed of the woman who will bruise or crush the head of the serpent. And at this point in scripture, it becomes this long-awaited anticipation for this promised son, the offspring who will fulfill God's promise. And what's interesting is that this promise resurfaces again. We hear it given to Abraham. Genesis 17, verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to God, to you, and to your offspring forever. A promise is still alive. Hundreds of years later, the promise is reaffirmed to King David. 2 Samuel 7, verse 11. From that time, I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now the near fulfillment of this is most certainly Solomon, but when you begin to piece together the language of an eternal kingdom and a son and offspring, you cannot but help to hear the echoes of Genesis 3.15 here given to David. The promise remains intact, and it remains intact even under the threat of impending exile to Babylon through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of His government and of peace, there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. A bit of context for that scripture that we not only read, but often hear this time of year. 
And then finally, we come to the New Testament. And what do we hear there? Well, again, the story that we so often read this time of year in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. The sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You're beginning to hear the pattern, aren't you? Well, this promise of God is so central to the storyline of the Scriptures that the Apostle Paul considers it to be the Gospel. Romans chapter 1. How does Paul begin as he writes to the church at Rome? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel, the son of God, according to the power of the Spirit of holiness. Therefore, once we pan out with our wide-angle lens and begin to view the Scriptures, we will discover that the Son of God accomplishes and fulfills what the first Son of God, Adam, could not do. Jesus destroys the works of the devil not simply by what he accomplishes on the cross, but by the very fact of who he is upon the cross and in his death and in his resurrection. For Jesus is the second Adam. He is the true Son of God. Because what does Christ do? Well, look at everything that Adam was supposed to do and failed, and look at everything that Christ has come to do and accomplished. He faithfully and perfectly fulfills the commission to tend and to keep God's creation. Christ faithfully and successfully guards his people from the great serpent. He guards his people from the works of the devil instead of giving them into his schemes. Instead of plunging the world into a deadly curse, as Adam did, Christ comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And so Jesus not only proves himself faultless in the the face of temptation, but then he then crushes the bondage of Satan and the curse of sin through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. That is why we say he is the promised son of God. His very identity and his very ministry accomplishes for us what Adam failed to do. So in all of this, we can confidently say, Christ not only reconciles us to God, but he also delivers us from the power of the devil that is sin and death. And Satan has no power ultimately over us. 
Christ has come to accomplish all that Adam could not, and he's done it perfectly and brought us into even a better condition than that of Eden. Christ has come to save sinners, not just in their sins, but from their sins, from the very curse of sin. Yes, he's come to destroy sins and all the scheming work of the devil to entice more sin. John Owen would say, enemies may be reconciled, but enmity cannot. Yea, the only way to reconcile enemies is to destroy the enmity. Good news. The enmity of Satan is destroyed by the coming of the Son of God. Therefore, there is great hope for sinners. That's what John is getting at. So when we take all of this into account, what we could say, what we discover, is that the Christmas story... It's actually a political story. Probably the two things you'd never think you'd want to combine around the Christmas dinner table. But I would encourage you to bring that up. Did you know the Christmas story is actually a political story? And you hear the knife scrape against the plate. You could say that. And you could go on and explain and say, no, not the saber rattling of these transient earthly kingdoms but the defeat of evil, the defeat of oppressive rule that's found in the victory of Christ. Because the scriptures tell us the story of a king who goes to battle. This king, he defeats an enemy, he rescues his bride, and he reigns in peace. That is a very political story of a king who goes to battle, conquers, wins, and brings about peace. Again, that's why we read Isaiah. We read the portion of 6 and following, but do you know what Isaiah speaks just prior to verse 6 of Isaiah 9? It gets skipped a lot because there's words like blood and tumult and boots and everything. But it's actually quite important when you remember the political victory, the kingly victory, that this Son of God has come to bring. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. The significance of that son, the significance of that birth, has everything to do with the oppression and the demise of sin and Satan and the necessary work of a conqueror to come and to destroy that rebellion. Literally, as it says, to break the rod of the oppressor, every boot and trampling warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned with fire. That is what the Son has come to do. So Christian, you may not get a Christmas card that says, good news, Christ has come to destroy. But you know in the back of your mind, that is tremendously good news. Because you can look 
up, you can lift your eyes and see what he's done out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You can say he has broken the yoke of your burden, the cruel rod of your oppressor, and he's brought you into a harvest celebration. That's what Isaiah says. The Son of God has come to destroy the works of the devil. And upon returning from battle, he calls out to his church and he says, good news. I have great news in returning from this battle. What is the good news? Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What we're saying is that sin and Satan shall not have the last word in the Christian's life. For the Son of God has come to destroy, to obliterate the works of the devil. He has not come merely just to impede or slow down his work. He has come to destroy it. And so because of this, we have one more reason to be filled with hope and to be filled with expectation as we await his return and the resurrection of our bodies. And on that great day, Christ will present his bride to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. All of this because Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil. So what a wonderful hope we've been given, the very hope that Isaac Watts helpfully and so well-known penned in the words that we love to sing. And no other way to say it than joy, rejoice. And it's an announcement. We say joy to the world. Tell this to the world. You know it well, but listen in light of this context. Joy to the earth. The Savior reigns. Let men their songs. That means men we should sing. Employ. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Christ has come, in part, to destroy the works of the devil. Let's give thanks. Father, we look to you this morning, mindful that these words are not words that we often link together when we consider the hope of this season, the Son that you've given to us, Emmanuel, But Lord, we rejoice to know and to to be reminded of the fact that you have given us your son to destroy. To destroy the very thing and the very one who would would destroy us. To rescue us not only from our sin, not only from the guilt of sin, but the one who entices and incites and seeks to overthrow and supplant. Lord Jesus, you are on your throne. We rejoice to know that you have come. And we find great hope and anticipation in knowing you shall come again. So Lord, until that day, help us to be the people that we are, a people of faith, sojourners, pilgrims, the ones who treasure up these promises, the ones who who pour over Scripture to find them and to be reminded of them, the very ones who ask that by your Spirit you would cause the truth of these promises to nourish our souls, to strengthen us, even in the midst of sickness and weariness in the midst of the effects of sin and the discouragement of what we see around us to have this great hope that it shall not be this way forever. 
But Lord, you have come, and you are the victor. You are the rescuer. Continue to work all of this good news in the midst of us. For your sake, we pray. Amen.